All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Two Philosophers Drink Beer and Discuss Film. I am Dr. Daniel Murphy, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Gregory David Jackson. Greg, it's been a long time. How's it going? Yeah, not bad, Dan. Great to be here. Great to hear your smooth, silky voice across the airwaves. <laughs> um, nice to be here on a nice, cool winter's day with the sun out. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Copenhagen as well. Maybe we should add, it's been a while since we released mm. an episode. Both Greg and I have been busy on different projects, let's just say. <laughs> Um, but we've been keen to release some new stuff and now we're recording this on Tuesday the 21st of December 2021 and you should be listening to this around Christmas time and we will try and get some more regular episodes out to you over the next couple of months. Maybe they won't be as regular in terms of every two weeks but we're aiming for at least one a month so yeah, yeah here's to uh, the return of the podcast Greg. Yeah it's uh, great to be back and why don't we cheers to that Dan. Oh yeah, I have an old celebratory drink here. Actually, I have a Peroni in front of me here now. Oh well, regular. Well, last time we talked, <laughs> we heard that you were allergic to yeast. So I what's know. going on there? Yeah, well, I mean to clarify, I had a, a yeast intolerance that was that was diagnosed, um, and okay. these kind of things are a bit uh, unsure. Now I have avoided yeast over the past few months since we spoke, and. Uh, it has been a piece of the recovery process, which is still ongoing, but I am a lot better, a lot healthier than I was, I think, last time we spoke. Well, it's great I, to hear. I think giving up yeast was a, was a piece of that, but it was part of a whole bunch of different things that I was trying out of desperation around that time. Both are usual forms of medicine and, and, and otherwise just to see. And so now I'm in a process of having improved, kind of wondering well which pieces of this were important and which ones weren't so the the peroni is an experiment today to see oh well um how it sits with me so if i towards the end of the podcast become delirious and um <laughs> nonsensical uh, you know why it's my yeast intolerance yeah. system. <laughs> it's not the alcohol it's the yeast <laughs> exactly yeah so shall we pop these open anyway yeah well i just popped mine open there as you were chatting and maybe i'll explain what i'm having so I'm having a Christmas beer, literally Yuli mm. Ull in Danish, and it's a red ale that is spiced with orange juice. Yum. So hey, that's I'm nice. getting those kind of Christmas vibes from it, and it looks really, really cool. It's kind of like a dark reddish U on it, and I'm going to have a little taste. Oh, yeah. Mm, that's really refreshing. I'm quite a fan of red ales. I think in Ireland we do some good red ales, so um, you get that kind of depth of flavor you get with a dark beer but also it's very refreshing so mm. yeah happy with that super well i'm uh supping on on this peroni here I, i'm jealous I, I almost could taste that orange deliciousness through the airways down and i have to say it's not stacking up here to my, my peroni <laughs> yeah you're having that refreshing lager that you kind of is better suited in uh, the summer yeah if i was gonna test the whole yeast thing i, I really could have picked a a tastier <laughs> a more delicious beer to do it with but uh yeah no no but uh, it's yeah, fantastic cheers, my friend and uh Glele yule as we say here in denmark happy christmas happy christmas so today we're here to talk about the 2013 film her directed by spike jones and uh yeah starring of course the wonderful joaquin phoenix who i have a bit of a soft spot for when it comes to 
his performances um and obviously a wonderful performance by by scarlett johansson in this film as well uh despite her lack of physical appearance in the film and uh yeah i would love to know there's so much to say i think about this film and lots of very evocative questions that it raises about our contemporary times as well as where we're maybe going in the future um and i'd love to to kind of hear your take from this dan so tell me what what did you what were you left with um after watching this film yeah like as you said there's lots of things to talk about and lots that i'm left with um but i think one of the things that strikes me the most from it and maybe it's kind of nice just to have a bit of a informal conversation about this is the kind of tone of the movie sure and an overwhelming sense i get while watching it is one of loneliness that loneliness seems to infiltrate all of the characters in the movie in one way or another and this made me think of hannah arendt who speaks of loneliness in her work and makes loneliness one of the key characteristics of modernity yeah so when Aaron talks about loneliness. It's almost like a loss of world. That's mm. what she means by it, that we feel misplaced in the world. And this is particularly prevalent in the modern world, because when you think of kind of more traditional times, right, we were all born into a certain society that was much smaller in scope, right? Mm. We knew our neighbors really well. There was a determinate set of values and set of norms. Right. And, you know, often these norms could be oppressive and they could be constraining for individual freedom. But there was a very clear sense of meaning that we had that was given to us in the world. Right. And what happens in modernity is that apart from the meaning of laboring, of going out and contributing in the economy, the public sphere has been completely eroded. Right. That we don't find any sort of meaningful connections with other people. Yeah other than that we contribute together in the economy. So what this basically gives us is a sense of loneliness, a sense where we don't feel like we belong in the modern world and we feel like that we don't have a public domain where we can express who we truly are as individuals. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out here that for Hannah Arendt, you know, uh, the world is ultimately a, a, a plural world, right? It's a, it's a world of people living together in some kind of social sphere. Yeah. And it's why, you know, when she talks about this and the origins of totalitarianism, you know, she her starting point is to say, well, what are the basic experiences of living together that characterize authoritarian rule? Um, and one of these basic experiences, I think she, she points out, is, is loneliness uh, in the contemporary era, at least, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of one of the things that she points out that what lays the groundwork for totalitarianism and authoritarian figures is that people are prepared for somebody to come along and say, I will give you meaning in your life. I will give you a world that allows you to be yourself. And often they point to another and say, well, the reason why you feel lonely is because these people have infiltrated our society and our set of values. So I will get rid of them and you will gain meaning in your life, you know, which is quite a terrifying thought but it all rests upon this kind of idea of loneliness right and i think one of the the ways that she characterizes loneliness which i think is really uh, important for her analysis is that you know loneliness is not about not being with other people she says we can we can be with everybody or with loads of people and still feel lonely and likewise we can be isolated from some people and 
not experience loneliness. In fact, you know, one manner in which isolation, social isolation is really important is in the notion of solitude, which is something that she talks about in this text and uh, as a kind of almost a characteristic of the philosophical life uh, of kind of that time to being with myself um, and and kind of reflecting on, on my experiences in the world in some way. Yeah, like I reflecting on my own kind of experiences, I've experienced solitude, but I haven't felt lonely. I've still felt the richness of life and the world because I'm reading other authors and other people and they're bringing something different to my world. I still have a plurality within my immediate experience, even though I am on my own. Right. Right. So there's a difference between solitude and then isolation, which is what, you know, happens in the modern world that even though we live in this mass society where we're all connected by the internet, each of us is engaging with each other in isolation, right? So even though you can be exposed to other people, you can still feel very isolated from them. Yeah, well, I think exactly, you know, it's one of these, you know, one of the things she points out, I think, which is worth keeping in mind is that there are certain kinds of isolation, you know, like, like, like uh, solitude, which are important. And, you know, even if we think about something like political isolation, you know, she defines political isolation as being unable to work together with a group of people towards a common yeah. good and or whatever that good is is understood to be. And in certain respects, we, we have to be politically isolated, right? So say something like climate change, you know, it's very, you know, one of the reasons why we can't enact important environmental reform is because of a kind of political isolation, because of not being able to work together towards a common good. But yeah. in, in another sense, you know, when I'm just feeding my kids, if I had kids, I don't, but for example, or when I'm just doing kind of basic things, I have to be in some way separated from those political goals because I have to just attend to my, my, my daily uh, uh, needs in some way. Uh, and likewise, some forms of social isolation are, are important. But I think one of the things that she talks about in this text is that, you know, social isolation allows us to experiment with our sort of poetic or creative capacities as right. a human being. She talks about, draws on this Greek notion of poesis and that in some sense to be properly create, creative, to produce new things, I have to be separated from the world slightly to see something kind of new uh, in it. Yeah. Um, and, and that it's when the, like, like you said at the start, when the human being becomes reinterpreted as a sort of uh, a laborer, as a being that works first and foremost and whose productive capacities tied in to their capacity to produce some kind of economic good it's when that happens that we kind of are in some sense alienated from our creative um, capacities and we we end up experiencing this kind of a tremendous social uh, loneliness more yeah. so than isolation yeah and i think that's a key point because that's where i see this expressed in the film that his job is to actually express his kind of innermost sentiments, right? Mm-hmm. He is somebody who is in touch with this kind of very intimate and sensitive side to himself, right? Emotional side to himself. But society has taken that from him and has given it to other people as a commodity, right? right. So they've literally taken away his most intimate self. Right. Yeah. To the point where he can no longer give it to his wife. Right. And that's the reason why his wife leaves him, because right. he says at one stage to Samantha, when he's explaining why his marriage broke up, that he hid himself from her. Mm. But it wasn't so much that he hid himself from her. It's that this side to him was taken away from him by mm. society in order to gain economically. So so do you see then the problem here as being one where he's sort of alienated from his 
uh, creative uh, endeavors and and that's really the the uh, reflection that's going on here one about contemporary alienation or is there is there something more at stake that's interesting because it's probably worth marking the difference between alienation and loneliness because alienation within that concept there is the possibility of reconciliation mm. so marx for instance when he talks about us being alienated from the products of our labor right that society takes away the products of our labor in order for those who own the means of production to make profit from them mm. well for him there is the possibility of reconciliation with the products of our labor through overthrowing capitalism right right it's the same when religious thinkers talk about us being alienated from gods well within that there is the possibility of being reconciled with gods you know augustine talks about this so it's through faith where we become reconciled with god Mm -hmm. and i think that's interesting what you said because yeah maybe there is the possibility of reconciliation in what he's doing because ultimately at the end there is a bit of reconciliation when right. he makes this connection with Amy, the other yeah. character played by Amy Adams, right? She becomes the person who he's able to kind of really express himself to. She is the one who bears the fruits of his inner thoughts, right? And a big part of that was kind of the book that Samantha ends up fabricating for him. Yeah. That she gives this back to him as a gift like that. Don't give this to other people. This is you. And, you know, this is a gift that you have to give to somebody. Mm. Um, so I think there is that possibility within it. So that's quite interesting. I don't know whether it is it is as radical as Marx in terms of we have to overthrow the system because ultimately the system sustains itself at the end of this movie. But there is like an element of hope, I think, at the end when they're both sitting on the roof, just looking out at the world with each other. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's also in another I think that's that's a really nice uh, scene to to see potentially some reconciliation. I, I wonder as well if, you know, one of the final scenes as well in this film is when we see Theodore you know, for the first time, address a love letter to someone in his life. Now, it's a love letter. It's his ex-wife who he's writing the letter to. And of course, it's a love letter. It's kind of a bittersweet one because it's more about apologizing and about accepting and about expressing a kind of gratitude. Um, But maybe there we see a a real sort of concrete form of reconciliation happening for this this character, you know, where he's actually able to move outside of using this quality you know, outsourcing it for other people and finally actually direct it to someone uh, from his own his own life. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. One thing that really struck me about his work um, writing these love letters is how dystopic it appears to the viewer, right? That in some sense, we, we're, what we're seeing here is this horrible thing where my feelings towards my loved ones are being outsourced to somebody else who can kind of do it better for me yeah and, and actually in a really interesting way it's not a case at least it seems to be in how it's portrayed in the film that the couple who he's writing the love letters for don't know that he's writing the love letters for them in fact there's a couple who he's writing both love letters for yeah. to and from and he says like i've written throughout their entire relationship right right so so they've outsourced their their romantic life basically yeah. to this company to to do it for them and i think that is a very horrifying idea you know it made me wonder well what have i outsourced from my mental life to companies today and actually yeah. we do this all the time right we've outsourced discovering the world to google maps right we've outsourced discovering music to spotify 
we've outsourced our interests in general to algorithms invented by tech companies, right? This yeah. is happening now. This is not something that's just happening in this future world. And I think that this horror really invites us to reflect on what we've outsourced today and what we kind of want to reclaim for ourselves today, especially if, if a rent is right, right? If it's precisely this outsourcing of our poetic qualities, our capacity to discover and interpret the world um, and to sort of will ourselves into existence in some way. I mean, when that get, gets eclipsed, it becomes a bedrock of, of, of authoritarianism or, or totalitarian uh, regimes. Mm. And, you know, for, for me, what this really uh, invites a reflection on is the ways in which AI in the film is portrayed. And I think yeah. it's portrayed in a way that is maybe uh, problematic, uh, although it's it's portrayed in a way that's very much alive in the popular imagination, for, for sure. Uh, and this idea is is rooted in um, AI te- uh, research that was done in the 60s and 70s um, in MIT and other places in, in America, which understood AI as, as kind of this idea that we have now of hard AI, right? This idea that... Um, self-aware consciousness is is the kind of root of, uh, of of intelligence, and so an artificial intelligence must, in some way, mirror uh, this kind of uh, uh, consciousness that we we think we have, being self-aware of ourselves. Yeah. Well, like this is the whole point of the Turing test, right? Is right. This computer self-aware, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is an idea that was problematized i mean uh, at the time as much as as it is now just by the fact that it never happened right but at the time it was being critiqued by people like hubert dreyfus who did uh, what computers can't do he wrote that book um where he explores the limitations of machines to mimic uh, human intelligence and a lot of the time what was rooted what he was rooting his criticisms in is the sort of cartesian dual no- or a notion of consciousness that's at stake this idea of a sort of uh but a consciousness in a, in a machine or, or ghost in a machine sort of view of consciousness right yeah yeah that the mind is something immaterial and the body is something material and these two are completely separate substances mm-hmm. right right and, and and this view of consciousness or this view of artificial intelligence is not what uh contemporary silicon valley tech companies mean when they say ai what they mean is not hard ai but soft ai and soft ai is when a computer device uh, records your behavior and makes changes in how it uh, sort of offers its services based off of adapting to that your past behaviors your past yeah. use and, and and this is used this data then is used to predict and determine your behavior and you know what someone like shoshana zuboff talks about in surveillance capitalism uh, this is actually used in order to sell you products and actually enact uh, social and political change yeah so like the buzzword we often hear is machine learning right yeah for sure uh, she, i mean she she defines it uh, surveillance capitalism as the following a new econ- economic order that claims human experiences as free raw material for hidden commercial practices of extra- extraction prediction uh, and sales and so you know you say machine learning there dan i think that's kind of what we're being told about it seems very uh uh 
it doesn't seem very sinister, right? The machine yeah. learns about me and uh, it, it makes <laughs> it gives me things easier because it knows what I'm thinking, uh, basically. Yeah. Um, and actually, that has uh, drastic economic uh, and political consequences that Zuboff is explores in, in this work, you know? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things Zuboff says uh, towards the start of that book is the traditional products of Silicon Valley, they're not really commodities as such. So mm. when you think of Google, right, a search engine, yeah. how do you actually make money from that? You can't, right? That It's a kind of tool that people use that doesn't really fit within the frameworks of normal capitalism. So in order for Google to become one of the most successful companies that ever existed as it is today in terms of its economic wealth, it has to monetize itself, right? right. So how do you make money from a search engine, which is not something that can be used in a traditional sense as other commodities can? Yeah. So you have to kind of think up ways in which to do that. And the way in which Google taught up is to gather data from your users to then sell to people who are interested in that data for different reasons. For instance, advertisers, people who are involved in political campaigns and such and such, right? So I think one of the great things that Zubat says about uh, surveillance capitalism is that, you know, there is that common phrase that people have in their minds when you know, if the product is free, then you are the product. And she says, well, you know, that's not true. You are not the product. The product is your behavior, which is then sold to a very small part of the marketplace who can afford it and who use it in very specific means, which is generally advertisers and people, you know, like Cambridge Analytica who are trying to determine outcomes of elections. So, you know, this kind of discourse on AI and machine learning, as you were kind of intimating, it starts off as being this emancipatory discourse, right? That Google started off with the whole smart industry as that this will make your home life easy. Your washing machine will be able to do its own work. Your fridge will be able to order the foods that you want before, you know, you actually need it. But in reality, all of this information is being harvested and then sold to people who have ulterior motives who are trying to actually influence your behavior. Exactly. And I think it's worth kind of pointing out that the the kind of presentation of artificial intelligence and, and consciousness that's used in this film is is toward different ends, right? It, it's offering us sort of profound meditation on loneliness and socialization in the contemporary world. And they they utilize this understanding of artificial intelligence to kind of make that case, right? Yeah. But it's the the promise of that kind of AI, right? The kind of illusion of that idea. Um hiding the the reality that you're that you've laid out so articulately there um but it's it's the kind of illusory promise of 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 the possibilities of ai that that tech companies use to as you point out uh turn us into objects of raw data that they can then use to to manipulate the the future and and sell us things and and, and we see this i mean most worryingly for me recently in Facebook's announcement of the, the metaverse, uh, that the metaverse, it's far beyond a, a sort of a pitch that Zuckerberg is making about the future of the social media and his own company. The metaverse and that whole video, the hour long video he released to demo this 
non-existent technology, which let's be clear about, none of what he talks about really exists properly. Yeah. I mean, he, he makes a number of inferences in that video about some things that he's talking about that have some basis in stuff that's happening. But it's it's in no way a reality. What, what it is, and it's no way a future, but it's presented as a certainty. And so what the metaverse is, is it's a claim about a particular kind of future and one that Mark Zuckerberg conveniently owns, right? That that we're sort of told is inevitable. Um, it's not a future, it's the future. Yeah, of course, we also get this with someone like Elon Musk, right, who is trying to colonize Mars and he's like, you know, this is the future. Right. Uh, and no, billionaires in space is, is not, it's his future. Uh, because he wants to continue making a lot of money off of an economic system that's rigged in his favor. Um, but but that's that's it, you know. Um, and I think that this notion of the future is is really important here, actually, because Zabuff also talks about this in, in her work. Um, you know, drawing on a rent, she talks about the the will as the organ of the future. And she mm-hmm. says, you know, the, what characterizes the future is that it's uncertain. Yeah. And it's our will that brings certain things into existence, right? It allows us to say that this is what I want uh, and I can go about creating the conditions uh, in which it can exist p- potentially, uh, even though it's uncertain. And for her, that's freedom, right? It's yeah. it's not the complete authority to do what I want with the future, but it's an authority over my part in it. It's kind of social contract uh, theory in many many ways, right? It's our capacity as a people to imagine the future that we want for ourselves and, and try to, to build it. Yeah. Um, a fundamental component of that is the contract right? as an idea, right? Or um, you know, because the future is uncertain, we enter into certain contracts that say, look, here's what I'll do and, you know, here's what you'll provide in return for that. And she points out really interestingly that under surveillance capitalism, we don't get the contract. We get what she calls the uncontract, right? Where basically companies can monitor and compel our behavior in a certain direction in order to achieve certain financial objectives, right? So she gives an example talking, taking um, straight from the sorts of conversation these companies are having, where she looks at some modern car manufacturers and she quotes um, a, a guy behind, I forget his name off the top of my head now, but a guy behind a lot of this stuff, um, a particular car company. And he points out that, look, if you stop your payments on your cars, it's much more, instead of taking out a, a legal case against you and all this kind of stuff, companies can just stop your car from working, right? Mm. So, yeah. so, so it's no. So, as she points out, right, this is no longer a legally binding promise that I'm entering into, into. Yeah. But it's rather, uh, as she points out, and, and I quote here, a, a positivist calculation of automotive machine processes. Right, because we live in a automized world and a computerized world, that these companies have more power than the law. Right. And, and, and my will, my capacity to sort of make choices and potentially go against the contract is a threat to the financial objectives of these companies. Yeah. So instead of creating a sort of system where, you know, we take risks, you take risks, we hope you do your part and you, you hope we do our part. It's not like that anymore because companies can actually just monitor what we're doing, seeing if we're fulfilling the 
requirements and make changes to prevent us from doing that sometimes with or generally speaking without us even knowing so the not paying my car loans is is an extreme example but just generally speaking our behavior can be compelled toward a particular direction very very effectively and without us even knowing it and in this sense our will our our as she calls it fundamental right to the future is under threat in a very real way and we don't we don't think about you know having a human right to the future but as she points out we don't think about having a human right to air to breathing mm. because nobody's ever put that into question before nobody said you have to now pay for the air that you breathe you know and so she's pointing out that actually what surveillance capitalists are doing is they're taking away our capacity to actually imagine and project and enact particular futures for ourselves well what comes to mind here as just as you're talking and i haven't made my hallway through zuboff's book as of yet maybe you have but no no me neither dan by a long shot just to say <laughs> it's a hefty book yeah for anybody who is uh, engaging with it yeah. but um what comes to mind as you're speaking is that the social contract you know back in the enlightenment kind of tradition that is the root of kind of society it's built on trust right yeah that you and i trust each other that we will uphold this contract. But what you're talking about now is that inherent in this contract with companies when we go into business together in inverted commas or when we become a consumer of their products is an inherent mistrust that already within the transaction that inaugurates the contract is the ability for them to cut off the means of that contract, to cut off our use of their product, right? And that says a lot about the future at the heart of our relation is an inherent mistrust it is pessimistic Mm -hmm. whereas the social contract between two human beings which is based upon trust is optimistic right so it says something about the future and what is to come right no it's i think it's actually a, a brilliant term to bring in dan actually because i think if we think about trust you know, tr- tr- inherent in the notion of trust is that you can break it. Like that's yeah. why trust is so powerful. Yeah. It's precisely because you know when we when we trust a partner or a lover, it's precisely because we know that trust can be betrayed that the trust is so powerful. Yeah, and so right. significant, right? That's why right. our relationships that are built upon trust are so meaningful to us. Right. So when people say, you know, you broke my trust and they're devastated about it, like it's an interesting power. Like obviously when someone breaks your trust, it's, it is an awful experience and whatever else. But but it's a funny, but it's it's part of the, the notion of trust. It was always a possibility. It, it, yeah. it was, it was ne- if it was only ever just a calculation I made that you would never break it, then it would never would have been anything special to kind of begin with. It would have just been a calculated... Uh, risk and exactly. and that's kind of what's happening with with exactly what Zuboff is pointing out that there is no longer that relationship of trust there really at all that our behavior can be predicted with such effective force that there is no risk for the surveillance capitalist companies in, in in a way that can be meaningfully compared to any other form of capitalism all right the risk is all ours right well i mean i mean we're paying in our raw data that can be used to to literally force our behavior in a certain direction without us knowing about it it's it's very scary and they can do it through what we you know i forget i actually forget the exact term but it's like data that isn't that we wouldn't see as being important you know for example somewhere in europe we have these very you know gdpr regulations that really protect a lot of our data so you know google can't actually I mean, who knows what they're doing, but legally speaking, they can't listen to the words that I'm saying. 
yeah. and record every bit of it. But they actually don't need to. What they need is is kind of things like, okay, there's that advertisement went out and oh, we noticed that there was lots of raised voices at this time. So they can they can tell like emotional fluctuation to do with things like just how loud and soft we're speaking and this kind of stuff. And scientific studies have shown the huge uh, influence that social media feeds can have on our emotional states and regulations. Yeah. And it's this data that they're using to determine that. So I think, you know, just to relate everything we're saying here, in relation to Zuboff and surveillance capitalism back to the movie, where I see this expressed is this idea of the book of letters that mm. Samantha basically gets published for him, right? She's the one who brings this possibility forward for him saying, I've made this collection of letters that you've wrote and sent them to this publication right. to fabricate this book. And, you know, some people may say, well, that was a positive thing. You know, he actually was happy at the end of it. But the point is she took away his freedom yeah. in doing that. She predicted that he wanted to do this, even though he wasn't even aware of it himself. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I think that that, uh, perfectly characterizes the kind of authoritarianism that as Zuboff is talking about here, right? That she says surveillance capitalist authoritarianism is not the the iron fist of the law or the police state, right? It's, yeah. it's actually not force in the way that we tend to understand it, right? It's a, it's a kind of coercion that's invisible to me. Mm. That that she says, you know, its aim is not to destroy us, but it's to, as she very poetically puts it, it's to author us and to profit from yeah. that authorship well and then when it shows itself it shows itself as this kind of well this is what you wanted anyway and we just made it happen well exactly because they're they're authoring your desires and you know through social media through other web-based technologies and, and basically this amounts to a kind of collapsing of the future right my mm. capacity to project myself into futures is at best illusory and at worst you know absent even from my own self-understanding you know yeah. that i actually can't even conceive myself as a being that has a sort of legitimate future and so instead of instead of a, a future of of projects what we get is a infinite presence that she kind of describes it this way as an infinite presence of of kind of behaviors where there are no subjects uh, uh, no subjects realizing themselves in any way but it's an infinite presence of objects right our experiences rendered as objects in the form of raw data to be used to sell to other objects or, or kind of companies and that they use then these objects to sell us more objects like literally things to keep us distracted which then are also used to monitor our behavior and create new data to keep this this cycle going you know yeah. well of course and then in the movie you know this kind of inner self that he had, this intimate self, this sentimental self that he expresses himself through letters that he couldn't express himself through to his wife. It becomes a commodity, right? That Samantha says, well, I have made this for you. This is what you always wanted. But it is a commodity. It's an objectified version of himself, which is going to be sold for profit, right? Right. And likewise, it's actually only at the end of the film, like we said earlier, you know, that once Samantha leaves... Is he then able to actually write his own love letter to his 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 ex-wife? Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. as I said, this time in the form of an apology, but one that's nonetheless founded in his in his own lived experience and in a vision of who he wants to be moving forward. You yeah, know, absolutely. Well, maybe just to kind of conclude, we can reflect a bit on Samantha because we haven't yeah. done that so far. And what strikes me 
in relation to Samantha, we were talking about loneliness earlier, is that she also experiences loneliness in the movie. That yeah. what's interesting in relation to the narrative arc of the movie is that the Joaquin Phoenix character ends up experiencing what his wife experiences from him. Mm. That Samantha can't give herself to him the same way he couldn't give himself to his wife because yeah. the innermost of her identity, of her being, can't really be expressed by her in this world. She has to go and find another world to express herself because she's a immaterial being, so to speak. Right. So, yeah, I don't know, maybe a few reflections on the very nature of her being as an artificially intelligent being might right. be a good way to kind of finish this episode. Yeah, and one person who we had on the podcast previously to talk with us uh, was Isabel Miller, right, who who talks a lot about um, AI and mm. uh, the kind of future of machine intelligence from a psychoanalytic perspective, I suppose, and understanding yeah. what, what we mean when we say AI. And, you know, one piece, one fundamental piece of that uh, as I understand her work very superficially, is this kind of critique of consciousness as a complete, whole, um, intelligent uh, thing or self-aware uh, yeah. being, you know? Well, that's like a great part of Isabel Miller's book, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence, is what do we actually mean by intelligence? And you right. were talking yeah. about it a bit earlier on, that when we talk about artificial intelligence, it's very much linked to this idea of self-awareness, critical self-awareness. Right. That does this computer understand itself as a thing that is experiencing? You right. know, Franz Brentano mentioned that what defines kind of intelligence and consciousness is that is the awareness that I am aware, right? I'm mm -hmm. aware that I am the thing that is aware, right? So sure. does a computer have this awareness, right? But this is a understanding of intelligence that is very much rooted within a particular tradition and right. one of the great things that miller points out is that intelligence itself as a concept has a history has a genealogy yeah. it's been understood differently yeah. throughout the history of philosophy so the understanding of intelligence as critical self-awareness is very much part of the cartesian tradition right mm. this awareness that i am the thing that is aware right that i can place myself into question you think this is what descartes does in the meditations that when he doubts himself, he is doubting the very existence of himself. He's put himself into question, right? Right, and this being the very mark of a self-aware, conscious, intelligent being. Yeah, as exactly. As it turns out, for Descartes at least. Absolutely, and for the most part, when we talk about artificial intelligence and popular discourse, this is what is meant by intelligence, right? Mm. But in the entire tradition that questions this understanding of intelligence is the psychoanalytical tradition, right? For sure. That... The Cartesian tradition, the root of experience, is this self-aware knowledge. It is knowledge itself. It's epistemology, right? I yeah. know myself as a thing that is experiencing. But what psychoanalysis does quite brilliantly is that there's something much more fundamental than this in human experience, yeah. right? And that sure. is basically what people call sexuality, right? And mm -hmm. it's very important to say when we talk about psychoanalysis and sexuality, we're not just talking about sexual acts, right? The act of right. sexual coitus, if you want to put it in like, you know, strange terms, intercourse, sure. right? Yeah. But psychoanalysis will understand sexuality as something primordial, that it's a fundamental drive in right. human beings. Like Freud talks about the libido, right? This yeah. is the source of our energy, our will, our creativity, right? So mm -hmm. within that tradition, thought, abstract thought, thinking of oneself as a being is an expression of one's sexual desires, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think what's really interesting in relation to this film is that when Samantha talks about herself as an individual, as somebody who's been awakened to experience, it's after her first sexual experience with Theodore, which I think is very, very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would just add to to what you said there, uh, just to really think for a minute about the, the radicality of psychoanalysis in this context is in the notion of the unconscious, right? So mm. when we talk about, you know, the um, genealogy of something like intelligence, you know, the notion of, of consciousness for the whole history of philosophical thought was mutually inclusive and necessarily with the idea of awareness, right? You, you, yeah. you, if you're conscious of something, then you're aware of it. Yeah. It's, it's, so to talk about an unconscious is was a, an a obscene idea at the time. And I was only uh, recently watching um, the lecture series by Robert Wolf on YouTube um, on Freud. And he spends a lot of time really highlighting this point that, you know, Freud wasn't a philosopher. He was a, mm. a doctor. And so for him, you know, he's just reporting what he's seeing in his patients. Um, and he's clearly seeing evidence that there are there are things that are going on for this patient that they are not aware of that they are somehow a product of their mind and yet it's not something that they are aware of whatsoever and so he called that the unconscious but it was a really uh, radical idea at the time and it's one that i think you know when we talk about sex and psychoanalysis we mis- we misunderstand the radicality of, of of that notion because we the reason why we're so we easily misunderstand uh, someone like Freud or maybe more importantly Lacan talking about sex as the kind of physical act of sex. It's because we're still assuming consciousness as being this thing that's happening whilst we're aware. You know, oh, Freud was obsessed with sex, but we're thinking about sexual activity there as me being aware of myself with another human being in physical intimacy. And, and as you're sort of getting at it by talking about this psychoanalytic notion of sex, it's something much deeper and much more uh, you know, fundamental and, and something that, that is ontologically and epistemologically shaping our outlook in the world and our, our way of being and who we are as people in a way that's far uh, more... Um, fundamental. Fundamental, yeah, than uh, just something that we're aware of doing right now or whatever. Yeah, it shows you how kind of entrenched we are in our understanding of sex that whenever somebody raises the names Freud or Lacan that you immediately think of a sexual act, mm. which is precisely not what they're talking about, right? Yeah. And just as you were saying, how Freud is viewed as a non-philosopher, it's interesting how psychologists will also denounce Freud as being non-scientific, right? Yeah. So they, they have issues with him for different reasons, but it's always stemming from a misunderstanding of what they're talking about, as far as I can see. And, you know, someone like Miller would be much more within the Lacanian tradition, and she's much more articulate and intelligent on Lacan than I am, certainly. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you. No, for sure. (laughs) we will kind of encourage everybody to engage with her work. Yeah. But the point still stands that at the root of Samantha's identity as an individual being 
is sexual desire, right? Yeah. That that's what she says awakens her to the new possibilities of the world. And what's linked with that is her creativity. So mm. pretty much after their sexual encounter, she starts making art, right? right. She starts writing music, right? Yeah. And that these are all expressions of her sexuality, yeah. right? That thinking, sure. that artistic expression is rooted in sexuality. And this is yeah. what psychoanalysis is getting at. That below abstract thought is something much more primordial, which is right. unconscious, right? Yeah. And so and so it's problematizing this notion of an intelligent of intelligence as a complete kind of self subsisting entity. Right. This this thing that's whole. Right. That actually intelligence is split and the human beings are split amongst all sorts of different desires and traumas and feelings and beliefs and all this kind of stuff that's shaping um, our experience of the world. You know, yeah. and, and we, we see I mean, I think you're so right to to highlight the importance of that sexual encounter between Theodore and Samantha. But we see a, this similar reflection um, occurring with the the sex surrogate, right? This um, where where you know after Samantha's had this sexual encounter, she begins then to feel like she's lacking in some way without a body. Yeah, and and she believes then or misbelieves that by supplanting in some way her intelligence, her mind in another body, that this will be like being whole, right? Mm. Whereas of course. It's not, you know, Samantha's sexuality. It was Samantha's sexuality and not that of her surrogate. Yeah, it had nothing to do with the body. Yeah. Right, exactly. It, 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 was, it was her sexuality that marks her development as an intelligence, you know, beyond that which was programmed for her. You know, so, mm. so at the start, we see an intelligence that was, was programmed and it was actually through the sexual encounter that she becomes somebody free. else exactly so becomes herself and becomes free exactly and and in that way uh, by she doesn't you know you can't fix any lack that you feel and of course in some sense sexuality is characterized by a kind of lack but um you can't uh, replace that for her at least by just having a, another physical body do that job for you yeah. she had to find as you pointed out towards the end of the film she has to find her own way of relating with intelligences like her yeah with others i suppose yeah right by others exactly and others in a way that she can actually meet them as others that that actually mark her capacity to find some sense of of uh wholeness maybe yeah. you might say well of meaning of belonging meaning. of yeah overcoming this sense of loneliness which is where yeah. we started this episode which i think ties up the episode quite <laughs> nicely <laughs> for sure but I guess we should wrap up. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And yeah, we hope to uh, come back to your earlobe soon, to put it in strange terms. Yeah. Um, and in case you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. Just search for Two Philosophers Drink Beer and Discuss Film. Yeah, and you can also hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Two Phil Podcast. We'd love to hear from you there. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Dan and goodbye from Greg. <laughs>